Hi, I'm Ben. And I'm Josh. And this is the Bad at Magic podcast, a podcast about games, life, and other things. So we're back for episode three, Ooh. and we've got some leftovers from last time. We need to do a bit of cleanup. Uh, my, we ha- we did a teaser of a story about your family and a child's birthday party that I was hoping you would tell me about. Oh, man. I don't know if I'm mentally prepared to launch into this, but uh, I will do my best. All right. So um, like I, I mentioned last time, I was the teaser. Um, from a family that is not real, not really known for 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 having weird birthday celebrations, but we have had really weird birthday celebrations ever since I was a kid. And while I haven't really continued that tradition, my brother has in in great ways. So, do you want to start with when I was a kid, or do you want to start and just go right into what my brother did for his son's birthday? I think it helps to have some context. Like this didn't okay. just come out of nowhere. All right, fair enough. So what what was the most memorable one from your childhood that's an example of this elaborate birthday party thing? All right, so I've got three that I'm going to share with you. Um, I don't know how old I was or whose birthdays they were or how old they were turning, but it was I was young enough that um, everything was like, it is remembered with that those rose-colored glasses when you look back on those things, but I was uh, old enough to remember some of the specific details about everything and the setup and that kind of stuff. So uh, the first one I remember was we had an elaborate giant food fight for one birthday. Like, and that was the setup. Like they... By design, your parents planned a food fight. Intentionally. That's right. We had all these kids over. It had to have been uh, a dozen or two dozen kids, like all the neighborhood kids, all of our cousins, the whole family, like everybody. Uh, Like, did it say food fight on the invitations? I don't know if, I don't know if we did invitations back then. That's one of the logistical details that I'm just not privy to since I was a little right. kid. I, I, birthdays just happen. I'd like to imagine that there were, there were like written or hand drawn invitations that went out to all the other parents and told them to, for your kids not to wear nice clothing. That sounds like something the rich family would do, but I guarantee what happened <laughs> with the Fleshman family was like, um, my dad was like over a campfire or something with my uncles or his friends from down the street and like drinking beers like, oh, hey, we're going to have a food fight for my kid's birthday next month. You should totally come. And they look at him like, yeah, that sounds great. We'll be there. That, that's probably uh, I was imagining like the opposite. I was imagining a kid coming home with like birthday cake in their hair and like, what on earth happened? <laughs> no, everybody, I think, was aware of what was going to happen beforehand. So when we grew up, we were out on this big two-acre plot. So we had all this land. And, you know, when you're a kid, two acres is, it might as well be a small country that we lived on. So what was the, what was the menu for the food fight? What kind of things were you throwing at each other? And that's the thing is it was, since it was a food fight by design, then you design food to be fought with. Like you don't just that's make good. like normal food. So I, I you weren't like throwing chicken bones or something. Yeah, exactly. Nothing, no skewers of meat and things like that. No, that was, that would have been unsafe. Um, I think I remember, um, like whipped cream pies, but not like actual pie, just like a plate covered in whipped cream was laid out for a bunch of people. Uh, I think there was buckets of like mashed potatoes and stuff. So it was a lot of easily grabbable, messy food to throw at people. And it just took place like way away from the house. Like there was just this big buffet table of, of ammunition. Like laid Dude, out. Your mom just got plus 50, 50 points on my cool meter. <laughs> right? So uh, they laid out all this food, and I, I think I remember them just saying go, and then it turned into this massive melee that, that was, I think it, the intention was it was supposed to be kids only, but of course the adults were close enough to want to watch, which made them bystanders, which turned into collateral damage, which turned into combatants. So it turned into this giant just melee free-for-all. As, as a good food fight should. 
as every food fight eventually devolves into anyway. I have never been in a food fight like that, but now that's on my bucket list. <laughs> well, next birthday party that comes up, you've got enough kids to have a, a full-blown oh food fight on your own. All right, so that was just the one. So the second one, I guess, probably a little more low-key, but I remember uh, my parents renting a dunk tank for one of the birthday parties and just having a dunk tank in the backyard while all the other party festivities are going out. And then different adults would rotate and sitting in the spot and the kids would take turns throwing the balls to try to dunk them. And looking back, that was that's a simple call to like a party rental place. Like, hey, you got a duck tank? How much can I have it for the weekend? But like at the time when I was a kid, that was astounding to have oh. some county oh, yeah, fair man. stuff at my house and just I can do this as many times as I want. What do you mean the ball doesn't cost a dollar a throw? Like it was yeah, yeah. That, it's like taking the glass off the pinball machine. I remember when I was a kid, I only saw those dunk tanks like once a year, and I would stare at them longingly, like that's something I'll never be able to do. Yeah, exactly. And it, it seems like a really simple thing when you're an adult. But if you really, at the same time, you've got to be thinking outside the box to think, oh, you know what would be great for my, my kid's birthday? Dunk tank. Okay. So what was the third yeah. one? So the third one was probably the most labor-intensive. And it was um, my dad set up a full-blown obstacle course in the vacant lot next door to us. We're talking like uh, American Ninja kind of thing here? Not Not that hardcore. It was uh, more like military training obstacle course. Uh, we didn't have like we didn't build anything big. So, so crawl underneath this twine that's suspended a foot off the ground, kind of. Yeah, thing. yeah. There's one of those. There was he made this big run in the. It was just a dirt lot, so he made like a. It was probably 20 yards, and he just soaked it with uh, one of those back and forth fan sprinklers overnight. So it was like a good muddy, like eight inches deep, thick, sticky mud that we had to run slash awesome. crawl through. Um, they had like buckets that you had to do the high knees to step through. Um, he had these big barrels uh, that he had from work that he taped a bunch of them together in like this long tunnel that you had to crawl through. Uh, okay, so, it, so this it, was a team effort from your parents. Your dad was committed as well. Yeah, and it turned he did all most of the construction stuff, and I'm sure my mom did all all of the the other logistical stuff in the background that you don't appreciate as a kid. Like the food preparations and the invitations and just all the little details that have to come together to have any kind of family gathering successful at all. Well, um, I think it's no secret that I adore your parents. Uh, you know, I met them <laughs> at, at your wedding, I think, if I hadn't met them before then. And then uh, ever since then, I've just every time I get to see them, I'm always pleased to see them. But I, I, I got to tell you, if I haven't mentioned this before, nothing kind of beats the fact that when I went over to their house one time, they had a photo of me on the wall. So that made me feel... Like, I belonged as part of your parents' family. Oh, and you've mentioned that before, but, like, I, whenever you say that, I'm imagining, like, it's the photo of you in our wedding party, right? Like, yeah. Nicole's wedding party. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I understand what you're saying there. It's like, oh, it's so nice to go to, like, a stranger's house and see your photo on the wall. But at the same time, well, you're at the event, and it's really a picture of the event. So you're kind of uh, ancillary. Don't take to that. this from me, man. You're downplaying it. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I'm I'm not intentionally trying to take it from you, but I am. So I'll stop. Yes, um, we have a photo of you up on the wall at my parents' okay, house. Okay, so your parents are awesome. Guy. They did fantastic birthday parties. <laughs> yes, and so like I didn't continue that because I'm I'm kind of the black sheep of my family. Um, I'm the I'm the quiet one. I'm the one that can't get the word in edgewise. <laughs> yeah. Okay, for all the listeners who don't know. Ben is laughing hysterically right now because in every social situation that he and I have ever been in, I'm I'm the one that's doing all the talking, and I'm like I'm not going to say I'm the life of the party, but I'm I'm up there and open and talkative and whatever. But in my family, I'm the quiet one. So yeah. And if you haven't okay. met my 
Yeah, if you haven't met me or my family, it's hard to kind of quantify that and how ridiculous that statement is. But I'm sure you you can back no, that up. No, no, I'm not going to non-concur here. Family get-togethers are a very boisterous event in the Fleshman family. <laughs> and you've only been for a handful of them. So what happened last month? All right, so last uh, is a couple weeks ago now, I guess. But my nephew's birthday is the same day that my birthday is. So he stole my birthday. So I'm, I'm going to be bitter about his birthdays forever. Um, but my brother has continued this tradition of overly elaborate birthday parties. So, um, like a couple of years ago, he did a full up, uh, uh, star Wars birthday for his son where all the kids that came were Jedi in training and they had to earn, uh, he had, he enlisted my mom to make these robes like Jedi robes. And then he made like lightsabers out of PVC pipe and spray paint. But the kids had to go through different steps to earn their different Jedi paraphernalia. So there's like an obstacle course that he set up with lasers in his uh, garage. And then there was a, they had to use, they set up this funny thing where they had a balloon set up on a board and the kids had to use their Jedi powers to pop the balloons. But it was, you know, it was just whoever was holding the board had a, had a nail that they could drive through the back of the board real quick, but it just blew the kids' minds like they had psychic powers. Okay. That's way awesome. Yeah, so he's the one that, that does all this stuff and puts all the time and effort into it and props to him. I, I don't have the patience to do any of that stuff, but I mean, good. How are your kids digging it? Oh, they, they always have a blast when they go do that stuff. Um, me and Nicole are more of the parents that like, so when my daughter's birthday is like, oh, well, what do you want to do for your birthday? Oh, well, let's just, let's just take all your kids to the trampoline gym. Uh, my son's birthday is coming up. We're going to take him and all of his friends to the skating rink because he wants to go skating for his birthday. Yeah, that so kind we're, of party's fun, too. I mean, it is fun too, but it's not to the, the the level of commitment that my brother and my sister-in-law do. So this last one, though, I feel in my mind at least took the cake. So a little bit of background for this is my, my brother and his wife are planning on remodeling their house, and they're in the middle of doing that now. But a part of that remodel is they wanted to knock down these two decorative walls. They're not structural. They're just separating space within their house. And so my brother had the idea, well, we're going to do this anyway, and we're having all these kids come over. Wouldn't it be fun to let the kids demolish part of our house as part of the party stuff? This sounds like a piñata gone wrong. This this is a, uh, yeah. So if you took a piñata and dialed it up to 11 and then made it from PG to rated R, that's what this was. So you were giving kids a sledgehammer. Did you put blindfolds on them? <laughs> we, okay. <laughs> so that's what I thought was going to happen. I thought my, my brother was just going to hand out a bunch of you know demolition tools to to ten year olds and be like all right go at it have fun and I was like they're gonna wreck your whole house like there's not gonna be anything left standing that's not what he did he did put a little more structure into it so the first thing he did was he uh, covered the wall to be demolished in balloons so it was like a solid mass of balloons again like you see at the county fair and then he had this all right we're gonna split you guys up into two teams and then you're gonna take turns and you've got to pop the red balloons and you guys got to pop the black balloons and whoever pops the other team's balloons first is the winner. And so then each kid took a turn. You're like, oh, how are they going to pop the balloons? Well, of course, they're going to take actual full-up darts that you would use like at a pub for a dartboard and just throw them at his wall. So what could possibly go wrong with 10-year-olds throwing actual heavy, sharp darts, Ben? Uh, I'm imagining that the, the blue balloons were on one half of the wall and the red balloons were on the other half of the wall and they were facing each other. So we had like the two teams facing off and throwing darts at each other? Uh, no, they were all on the same wall. So all the kids ah. were throwing in the same direction. One, and then he did have some structure where only one person got the throw at a time, so that was good. Now, my problem was... This party um, sounds like the Hunger Games. <laughs> it devolved into that. 
Um, this wall that we're talking about has a, a doorway on either side, and it's probably 10 feet wide and then open doorways on either side. So it's just in the middle of this space. And what I was worried about is the kids, uh, some of the kids threw at the wall, no problem. Other kids were a little less accurate. And I was a little worried about these darts flying off to either side and hitting innocent bystanders in the other room. And like I said, these aren't like, like little thumbtacks on them. They're heavy darts. The darts you see on internet videos that embed themselves three inches into people's arms when they're thrown wrong. So I remember going off, like, between one of the throws, I went to the other side of the wall and was, like, looking down this hallway. Because the hallway where all the kids' rooms are, my daughter was down there playing somewhere. And all I could imagine in my head was her coming around this corner at full tilt and then taking a dart, like, to her face. So I, I set myself up in front of this, the opening of this hallway on the, on the downrange side of these darts getting thrown. And then I remember standing there with my soda in my hand. I go, you know, if one of these kids does throw white, I'm probably going to want to be a little farther back. And I took one step back. And I, I swear it was not 10 seconds later that a dart flew right through where I was standing and embedded itself three inches into a door. And that would have been my thigh if I had not taken that one step back. Well done, you. Holy right. cow. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's like I predicted the future almost with my. Or you're on, you're, you're going viral on the internet pulling a dart out of your arm. Yeah, at a birthday party. And I, I would have, I probably would have sworn up a storm and like made a big fuss about it. It would have been a funny story for later, but at the time I would have been, I've been super mad about it. So, okay. Especially if it was some, some 10 year old you didn't know. So this is just like phase one of this whole thing, right? And then as a All right, part. So, so the balloons and darts. The balloons and darts. Now, some of these balloons were gold. And we, everybody asks, what are the gold balloons? And my brother goes, oh, well, if you get the gold balloons, then you get an upgrade. I'm like, oh, God, what does that mean? So the first kid hit one of the gold <laughs> balloons. And he goes, okay, for the next round, your entire team gets to use the sniper rifle. And we're like, what is he talking about? And he pulls this. Uh, <laughs> Alex. Yeah, yeah. So he pulls this uh, this uh, Nerf gun off of the top of his fridge. And we're like, oh, it's just a Nerf gun. But then he pulls the darts down. And he's got Nerf darts. And he taped thumbtacks to the front of these Nerf darts. And he's like, what? okay, let's, let's do it. Yeah. And he hands it to this kid. And I'm in the back like, okay, what could possibly go wrong now that this kid has been handed what is essentially a live weapon? Now, to Holy be fair, cow. he was a lot safer with those. Uh, he he always kept a hand on the on the barrel. So, like this uh -huh. kid is is aiming it, but he's not allowing him to swing it anywhere near anybody else. So, I mean, it was always pointed at the wall, and it did pop a couple balloons. But it was that one was much safer. He 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 was careful about that one. Okay, that's way awesome. That reminds uh, me of the scene. Did you see the old Weird Al Yankovic movie called UHF? I've heard about it, and I remember seeing clips of it when I was a little kid, but I have not seen the movie. One of the central plot points is this children's show run by um, the guy who played Kramer in Seinfeld, uh, Michael Richards. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene where there's a bunch of kids in like a kiddie pool, and he's like, you found the marble in the oatmeal. Now you get a drink from the fire hose. And he puts him on top of like this uh, horse, and he points a fire hose at his face and turns it on, and it blows the kid off the horse. <laughs> So I don't think it was quite that dangerous, but I, I, I can see the comparisons of the situation. All right. And then, all right. So we're not done yet. So the next kid that hit one of the gold balloons and he goes, oh, congratulations. Your team gets this upgrade. And we're, oh, what's this upgrade? He goes, oh, it's the sword. And we're like, okay, maybe he's got like a Nerf sword with a, with a thumbtack on that. But no, no. He goes in the other room and uh, my brother as a teenager collected actual working swords 
and he comes back out with this this claymore that's four feet long and it's got to weigh 40 pounds and it's an actual sword ben and he's like okay here you go and he had the for kid popping grab, balloons for popping the yeah he had the kid grab grab the sword and then again he kind of like it was kind of safe because this kid couldn't lift the sword by himself so he just had him I, I was expecting him to let him go and like cleave all the balloons with this sword but he just had him like all right aim it and then like have it jab and poke the balloons that way so but, the photos of I saw this were well were well past this stage. Well past it, yeah. Balloons. Oh no, I stopped. Yeah, I didn't take any pictures because I was too worried about the, the safety concerns. But uh, imagine you're a you bystander. You want to produce any evidence after a kid lost their eye, <sighs> right? Well, but just I mean, imagine if you're a parent that doesn't know this is going to happen when you show up to this birthday party, and then uh, <laughs> my like you're, you're a third party parent, and then my brother goes, "Oh, your team gets an upgrade," and he comes out of his laundry room with a four foot metal sword. And I don't I'm imagining the opposite. I'm imagining dropping my kid off at the birthday party, and then after they get back, I pick them up, and, and I'm like, so how's the birthday party? What'd you do? <laughs> you wouldn't believe him. There's absolutely no chance you'd believe him. <laughs> no, oh, you're right. I wouldn't awesome. believe him. We sung a sword at balloons and popped them all, and then we had a gun that, that shot up these balloons, and we embedded a dart in a wall, and then we knocked down part of his house. Like, oh, well, that sounds like I'm a like, fun party. Yeah, you made that up. Yeah, exactly. It's like, no, tell me what you really did. Did you play Duck, Duck, Goose? You probably played Duck, Duck, Goose. All right, so that that was the ridiculousness with the balloons. And I thought, oh, well, you know, that was that was crazy and a little destructive and fun. But then he goes over to the side, and he has this tarp laid out over all of this equipment, I guess. And he pulls the tarp back. He's like, all right, now time to knock the wall down. And, I mean, he had every heavy tool that he could find. So he had a, a, a plethora of hammers, a couple of crowbars, some big crescent wrenches, like anything right. that anything that was big and heavy that would be used for actual demolition. Do but me I a cannot... favor and describe the children. How many children were there? And describe their reaction when he pulled back the tarp. Did they cheer? Did they gasp? Did they sit there <laughs> silently with their eyes wide open? So there was between there's probably like a dozen kids. Uh, yeah, no more than like a dozen kids, uh, ranging from ages where my daughter was probably the youngest at four, and then the oldest kid there was ten or twelve, maybe. Uh, some one of the one of my nephew's friends' siblings, uh, you know, uh, young enough to be included, but old enough to feel like he's not really part of the group, kind of thing. And yeah, he uncovers this 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 bunch of tools, and like all the kids were like, "What's he talking about?" And then my nephew was trying to explain. He was like, "Oh, well, we're going to knock all this down. Like, we're going to take this. We're going to just destroy it." And then you could just feel the energy level of all these little boys just start to ramp up. And like couple that with all of the sugar that they've been ingesting this entire party, and just the fact that little boys are destructive anyway. And like, wait, what do you mean we get to actually break things? Like, no, you mean like we're just going to pretend? Like, no, 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 we get to actually swing real tools into the real wall. And what was the funniest thing? And I don't, I think my brother set this up on purpose. But like, the oldest kid went over, picked up a sledgehammer, and immediately slammed it into the wall, but not the wall that everyone thought was getting knocked down. So oh, there was, no. yeah, there was the main wall with all the balloons. And then there was like this little half height pony wall between separating two rooms. And he goes in and just wails and sets this giant hole in it. And my brother runs over and was like, whoa, wait, 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 not that one, not that one. And then like, you could see the parent, like all the kids were like, ooh. And then all the parents were like sheet white, like, holy crap. And then like my, my brother like looked over at the kid's dad and that guy was just completely tongue tied. Like you see him like working his mouth, like trying to figure out what to say. And then my brother finally let him off. He was like, oh, no, don't worry. We're knocking this one down, too. I figured I'd just mess with you. 
Oh man, I was holding my breath, waiting for the punchline of that. <sighs> right. Okay. Like, yeah, so he I'm played the trick on first, all the parents. I'm imagine the first couple of swings of the kids were kind of timid, like they've never done this kind of thing before, and they're not just gonna like wail on their first swing. That is precisely what happened. So, like the first kid goes up, and it was my my nephew. He's kind of destructive anyway, but he swung and like like kind of dinked the wall a couple times. It didn't really do anything. And then, like, they gave him, like, they did, like, a pinata, but they did round robin. The kid gets a handful of swings with their weapon of choice, and then you move on to the next kid. And then the next kid comes up and kind of did the same thing. And then finally they said, all right, no, never mind. Maddie, come up here. And there was, it's a girl that's on my brother's uh, Little League baseball team. I think she's, I think she's eight. And she's the hardest hitter on the team. And so she picked up the baseball bat, as I I forgot to mention, that's (laughs) one of the tools he had. And I, I... I couldn't believe it. Like she just went full tilt on this wall. Like it was scary. Immediately punched all the way through it on the first swing. And like, she was just wailing on it and got things started. And it's like, once there was like a decent sized hole in the wall, then the other kids were just like working to like, you know, expand it as they went forward. But it was awesome was like her, I think her second time up with the baseball bat, she broke the bat. Like she was swing, swinging an aluminum the- bat. No, it was a wooden bat. But oh. I mean, still, that's impressive. She's eight. <laughs> she swung, hit one of the, the studs, one of the two by fours in the wall, and the bat just cracked clean in half. And like, it was at that point, the parents realized what was going on and that it was going to be contained and channeled appropriately. And so when she broke the bat, there was cheering. Cheering erupted from the adults. Awesome. Just, right. So I think she How got to take the do? bat home. Oh, Carter did good. He's been, uh, he did good. I don't. I forget what he was using. I think he had a hammer. He kept wanting to flip it around to use the the nail puller side of the hammer, and we kept no, 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 no. That looks like it's going to be better, but it's just going to bounce right off and hurt you. Just keep hitting it with this side. And we had to keep moving him because he wanted to hit the studs, but he doesn't have the strength to knock a stud out of a wall. Because who does? So we right kept moving him off. But he, I mean, they had a blast. And the pictures that I sent awesome. you, that was the teaser that I sent you. Is I sent pictures of my daughter. Who was full playing dress up in a princess wearing peach a princess dress. costume, holding right. a hammer, swinging holding, in a wall. Yes, that's right. There's a big hole in the wall, and you can see her on the other side. This big grin on her face in a princess dress, just demolishing it. We'll tell Alex and Stephanie that they're awesome. <laughs> I already told I them that so. they're. I, well, I'll tell them that Ben says you guys are awesome, and that'll come in addition to me continually telling them that they're insane. Yeah. All right. So also last time on the show, you said something to me about how the fact that I wasn't nerdy enough to play Warhammer 40K, you said uh, that it wouldn't suit someone at your level of nerdness. And that made me feel like you have some kind of system for rating levels of nerdness that I've never heard before. So I was hoping you could elaborate a bit on that. Maybe just give us a teaser this time. We can go deeper into it next time. So I don't, I haven't, all of your systems are very formalized and you have them written down and you have charts and they're color coded. My, my systems are very informal and it's more of a, uh, like a, a quick classification in my mind that I put people in. I don't have distinct levels, but I think any nerd that is out there has been in the situation where you're trying, you've met a new person and you're trying to assess their level of nerdiness because you don't want to be, there's this this dance back and forth. You don't want to be the one to yeah. escalate the nerdness of you the relationship. You want to know how high to let your freak flag flag fly. Exactly, because especially for you and I, like nowadays, I mean, being a nerd is mainstream and cool. But back when when we were 
uh, you know, young professional adults. Like being a nerd was still kind of uh, there was you know, a taboo. Shunned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, you try to assess, like, okay, so how how much nerd can I show for this person and get away with it, kind of thing. So you develop those secret nerd handshakes. I remember one time I was walking down the hallway with, um, I had just moved to a new unit in the Air Force and uh, one of my subordinates and I were talking and we were just having this discussion and I said something that he agreed with and he like, it was nodding his head, writing it down and he just goes, woot. And then I kind of stopped and I, I, I gave him the side eye and I'm like, you elevated you? his nerd level. Well, no, he said it first, right? So he said woot and then right. I like side eye and I, did you just say woot? And then he looked back at me with the same side eye, like, Yes, yes, I did just say woot. And so that was like the secret, like un- below the table exchange of, okay, so this guy is a nerd. Now it's just a matter of finding out how nerd they are. Because first of all, uh, no normal person's ever going to say woot. And second of all, no normal person's ever going to recognize the word woot. Right. It'd almost just be like you sneezed or something. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, you'd get a weird look from them, but they wouldn't say anything about it because they wouldn't know what the word was. So I felt okay. like that was my the one clear example of I I don't know if he was feeling me out for my nerd level or what happened there if he just let it slip and I recognized it but that was like a secret nerd handshake that we did and from from there forward we realized okay we're both nerds so we can be nerds in front of each other. Well, you're right that I like to formalize these things and color code them so we are going to do this together. <laughs> okay. Sounds Not good. today, but but we'll start. We'll we'll develop our thresholds just like we did last time for like board games of of how complex they can be before they are no longer casual board games. Okay. We'll do, well, we'll do we'll do that with levels of nerdness. That sounds good. Let me give you the rough outline that I have in my head, kind of classifications, and I developed this system in college. So um, when I was in college, I remember some friends were playing Halo on the Xbox, and like that's like the entry level nerd. Like you have a gaming console. Because you talk to any, like, he's like, oh, man, you guys are such a nerd. I'm like, what are you talking about? You guys are playing video games right now. Oh, no, but this is this is Halo. So this isn't nerd stuff. This is just, you know, this is our console game. So there's, there's like, the console players. Okay. Um, I feel like there's uh, a level of, like, board gamers. Because I remember being approached very tentatively while I was in college. Like, hey, we've got this board game, and we need more players, and it's really long and complicated. And I'm not sure if you – I know you're kind of a nerd, and I'm not sure if you're into this kind of stuff. Uh, turned out to be Axis and Allies, and that game was awesome. Played that yes. a bunch of times. Yes. Big fan? Um, I, I'm not a big fan. It's a good game, but I'm not a fan of it, and that's a whole other discussion. We talked too much about board games last time, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, uh, the next kind of level was I remember being felt out by somebody else later on. It's like, hey, so I heard you're kind of a nerd. I'm like, yeah. It's like, so we've got this game, and we need players? I'm like, oh, what, like a board game or something? It's like, well, no, it's... It's, there's a book and there's rules, but there's not really any board. D&D. Yeah, and I, and I looked right at him like, you're talking about a role-playing game, right? He's like, yes. I'm like, perfect. Yeah, I'm in. And so that was like, because you can, like, the, the guy was approaching me with such caution. He didn't want to be the first one to point out that he wanted me to come join him playing a role-playing game because then I would have, like, I could have, like, looked at him and been like, are you talking about Dungeons and Dragons? Oh, my God. Get out of my room, you nerd. Like, and, he's just, <laughs> and he's just worried about, you know, that happening. So those there's, like, different... Um, just those interactions like showed me that there's different levels and you don't want to be the one to escalate it past the level of the person that you're talking to. Sure. Yeah. What's so, above that? Live action role play? Oof. Uh, that's, that is above that somewhere. I think there's tiers in there that we can define. But yeah, live action role play is something that you just you, you don't lightly say that to people. I remember being in a D&D group 
that I was hosting and two of the people saying, it's like, oh yeah, we're going to this um, live, it wasn't a live action role playing event. It was uh, some, they had some formalized society. It was basically LARPing, but there was no game to it. It was just everybody's like almost like a Renaissance festival. People go there for the intent of dressing up and pretending that they live in ye olden times. And I remember like, oh, myself, I was like, that sounds cool. I'd be interested in seeing that. Maybe not participating, but, you know, going and seeing it. But then I remember a couple of the people at the table, like you can see the look in their face like, oh, my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? Which is funny for somebody sitting at a table to play Dungeons and Dragons to think. Is that the end of your levels of nerdness primer for now? Ben's just like, okay, I'm done talking about that. Let's talk about something else. We'll call that my Forrest Gump. That's all I have to say about that. That's all I have to say about that. I like that. So this week I was at work and my wife has always kind of struggled with the fact that when I work in a secure area, I can't bring my cell phone in and I'm not necessarily at my desk that she can't get a hold of me when she needs to. So I'm sitting at my desk and my phone doesn't ring, but I get an email and it says, your daughter was hit by a car. And I'm like, what? So I pick up the phone and she's and she says, hey. Is she okay? Yeah, she's all right. Okay. Yeah. So she, before you go on with this long story, like, is your daughter okay? Good yeah, Lord. she's okay. She's okay. So my 11-year-old daughter rides her bike with her brother, who's 13. She's in sixth grade. He's in eighth grade. They both are in middle school. And they ride their bike two miles to uh, a school. They don't cross any main roads or anything like that. But where they were, they were in a crosswalk in a school zone on a four-way stop adjacent to an elementary school. And as they got to the intersection, uh, one car pulls up that's going 90 degrees to them. And one car pulls up parallel that's going the same direction them but is going to right turn across them the car that's going through the intersection 90 degrees to them stops halfway through the intersection and notices them and reaches out their hand and directs them to go ahead okay at at the same time the driver who was a 16 year old driver who'd had her license for a month thought that that car was directing her to go ahead and went at the same time that my 11 year old daughter went into the crosswalk on her bicycle Okay, so at least nobody was going very fast. It was from a stop. Right, but she kind of gunned it. Uh, of course she did, because she's 16. Well, and I, she was just trying to, okay, this lady wants me to go first, and I'm just going to go and get out of the way. And my daughter went, and that girl went, and basically I think she hit the side of the car and ended up under the rear wheel. Your daughter did? Yeah. Not like, not like yeah. her bike, but she actually got run over by a car. Yeah. yeah. Not hit by a car, run over by a car. Well, she didn't. I don't think the wheel passed over her body, but she still has some tire marks on her calf where it like stopped just short of actually running over her leg. Oof. Ooh. I mean, like you can get run over and be okay. It'd be worse if they had stopped on her leg. Right. Right. So uh, she she was scared, of course, and was crying and hysterical. And the six-year-old wasn't taking it very well. And my thirteen-year-old, who's there at the scene unfortunately has this personality where he's he described it later where he was looking at it and going um this would be pretty upsetting to mom maybe i shouldn't tell her because <laughs> <laughs> when you're a 13 year old kid that's the first thing that comes into your mind in situations like this well, I, of course it does how, what's gonna happen to me what's what, what are my parents gonna think of this but he also i think he just has this weird streak where he doesn't trust our reactions to things so he's he's not going to give us the chance i've had other experiences with him along these same lines so he the the cops show up within like a minute 
uh, and start just kind of taking control of the scene. They have my daughter lay down. There's an ambulance inbound. The principal at the elementary school has run out, and he remembers her because she went there last year. Um, and the you know the driver's pulled over to the side, and there's direct and traffic and stuff like that. So this is this is a question I have. How does a crosswalk in front of an elementary school in the morning not have a crossing guard? All right. So one, the middle school starts before the elementary school, and there were no elementary school kids present yet. Okay. And some of the, you know, a lot of middle school kids ride the bus or whatever, but my two kids were, were riding their bikes that morning. So that, that's one reason. And two, that's also part of the drama, and I'm going to come back to it in a minute. Ooh, drama. So when we, uh, yeah, I'll come back to it. So the, <laughs> my daughter is laying on the ground. They're calling an ambulance. It's pretty apparent she's not hurt. She was wearing a helmet. She didn't hit her head. She didn't lose consciousness, nothing like that. My son finally picked up the phone and called my mom. Uh, Luckily for him, no one else had called her yet. So he was the, called his mother. Sorry, I said my mother. Called his mother. So he was the first one to call her, and he told her what was going on. He's like, Mom, they're loading her into an ambulance right now, uh, so you'll, you'll just go to the hospital. And I think then the, the cop took the phone from my son and talked to her and told her what hospital they were going to and stuff. My okay, wife, so she's, your, your son has a cell phone? Yeah. Okay, so th- that's important then that he is the first one to call because I, I wouldn't right. necessarily expect my kids to be the first person to call me in this scenario unless they had a phone in their hand, in which case you had better, that better be the first action you do is take out your right. phone. That's the that's the talk we had, and it wasn't the first action he did, but maybe it will be if something like this ever happens, God forbid, in the future. Right. So they said, we're taking your daughter to the hospital. She's okay. Everything's fine. Uh, my wife had my nine-year-old daughter at home and she needed to take her to that elementary school right by where the accident had happened before she went to the hospital did your wife hit a kid on the way there is that where this is coming to (laughs) that is not where this is going i'm gonna (laughs) make it quick so she goes out to drive my daughter to elementary school and the cops and the girl that hit her are still there and as my wife drives past the car that the uh 16 year old driver hit my daughter in she sees her sitting in the driver's seat crying her eyes out And the cop's out there, like, writing a ticket or whatever. So my wife drops my nine-year-old off at the school. And before she goes to the hospital to pick up my daughter, she gets out of the car and goes over to the cop and says, can I talk to the girl that was driving the car? And I I don't know if I'm inserting more detail than was actually given, but he probably was kind of like, why? Hesitant. Yeah. Are you you going to swing into a blind, feral mama bear rage? Right, right. But I think she already was coming across as cool and collected, and he wasn't too on uneasy but she basically told him i just want to tell her it's okay and he's like fine go ahead so she went over knocked on the window and the girl rolled down the window she says do you mind getting out of the car and she said sure and she just gave her a big (laughs) hug and says it's okay no one's mad at you i'm sorry this happened my daughter's gonna be all right i hope you're okay and then she went to the hospital to pick up oh so okay so this is another excellent time to point out the difference between the rich family and the fleshman family because if if either (laughs) If it had been either my wife or I that had showed up on the scene, the exact same scenario, uh, 16-year-old kid crying her eyes out, uh, I probably would have been a little less just because, you know, girls crying disarms men. That's just in our genes, I think. But I feel like my wife and I would have had the same reaction. Oh, do you mind if we talk to the 16-year-old? It's like, um, why? It's like, oh, we're not going to hurt her anything. We just want to talk to her. It's like, okay, fine. Like, can you step out of the car, please? Yeah, sure. And she steps out of the car. And our immediate reaction would have been, I'm not going to stop until you are never allowed to drive ever again what kind of and just go off on some rant about how i'm going to destroy her life forever because of this irresponsible thing that she did so yeah you all ben rich's family is all about the forgiveness and trying to make everything better i'm all about the vengeance over here man like you're going down and i don't care what it costs 
so once I found out what actually happened, I felt really bad for this poor girl because, okay, if you or I are pulling up to a crosswalk and we're going to turn right across the crosswalk, we're cognizant of the two kids on bikes beside us that we just passed on the way. Right. But I could see how, how this 16-year-old in their daddy's car didn't see him. And she gets no. to the intersection and the Don't person make... stops in the middle intersection and waves to her. And she thinks that that person's waving to her. And she can't see across the, sc- across the car through her B-pillar uh, to the you know the little girl on a bike. No, that's don't make excuses for that. Your your daughter was a pedestrian. And she had the right of way always because pedestrians do. And the 16-year-old kid broke the rules, didn't do what she was supposed to do, didn't check all the way around her before she started going. She didn't question the strangeness of the situation with a car stopped in the middle of an intersection waving something to go. That doesn't happen. That, that, she will like, next time. It will, she will yeah. next time. This is not the way you're supposed to gain these kinds of experiences. Yeah. Well, I'm, like, I'm more mad at the lady who waved the poor girl through the intersection. She shouldn't have done that. She should have yeah. just gone. That lady should have Everything would have worked did. out. I completely agree with you. That lady, whenever you're doing something unusual in a situation where everybody agrees what the rules are, you're just adding complexity. Because now this is the problem. This is what really happened is you, you subverted the rules. Like this is the standard operating procedure for a four-way intersection. But you're doing something unusual, and now everybody's judgment comes into play. Yes. Every, and every person My daughter in the was confused. The 16-year-old yes. driver was confused. Everyone was confused, and it caused a problem. Everybody had to assess the situation and make their own determination of what to do. Your daughter got waved, and she's a little kid, so she thinks, oh, I'm allowed to go. Because an adult, an authority figure, told her that she can go. And the 16-year-old so, girl, if it wasn't a 16-year-old girl, if it had been, you know, an older, more experienced driver, they probably would have been like, okay, what is going on? And taken an extra second to look around and figure out what the scenario was. But precisely. the 16-year-old probably just too inexperienced and just like, oh, I guess I get to go now. All right. So here's what we put the placeholder in for a minute ago. So, so last I, year I, was the first year. Go ahead. I, I, sorry. I, I, to close out that part of the conversation, I still would have sued her until I owned that car. <laughs> well, her insurance company will pay for the hospital bills. So last year, the school, for the first time, had been like, why are we wasting so much time getting traffic guards for this intersection? We don't need them, and they'd stop doing them. This was oh, the first dear. major event to happen at this intersection since the school had stopped having crossing guards. And we didn't know because we didn't belong to the social media group, but this thing went nuts with mothers saying, see, we told you this intersection is a death trap. Everyone's <laughs> going to die. And they co-opted our accident as ammunition for their crusade. Oh, they're printing Russia's picture up on their posters as they pick at the school. You got now. it. Yeah. That's, and I um, keep running into people. Like on Wednesday, I took my 16-year-old daughter to get her driver's license at the DMV and the, and the employees at the DMV were talking about it. Not be- They didn't recognize you. They were just talking about the incident. Right. And I'm like, okay, how do you know about that? And they told me and I was like, well, I'm the father of the child that got hit. And then they realized that they might have been saying a bit of hearsay and kind of backed off a bit well i mean at the same time good on the dmv to take like a real world example of a young driver having these problems and using that to instill the fear of responsibility into these kids getting their license for the first time well the part where the dmv employees and myself were doing the handshake of freedom and justice was that we agreed that the lady who stopped in the middle of the intersection and started directing traffic was out of line well yeah like like we just talked about that was absolutely not her job all right well, that's a story. That's all I have well, to say about oh, that. Oh, come on. we got to talk more about the crossing guard thing. What's going on with that? Are you guys, like, where are you weighing in on okay, the crossing okay. guard? Okay, so, so you, know, you were talking about Alicia and I's personality. We're not the ones – first of all, we don't think that this was adequate justification for why there should or shouldn't be crossing guards. 
A girl, uh, an eleven-year-old girl, getting hit by a car is a justification for having crossing guards in front of a school zone. It was outside of the hours of that school zone. It was these are these are middle schoolers who should be able to handle it better, and I think they will in the future. But we also felt a little bit weird about the fact that someone else was co-opting our accident as ammunition for their cause. Like Alicia was like, "Should I go join this group on Facebook so that I can speak up for myself?" No, because there's absolutely nothing that she can do in that. This is an interesting thing that happens in our society where you get these third-hand accounts and then some independent group will take the scenario and use it as a totem. And in, just inside their echo chamber, they just build it up to be this giant thing that it exactly. isn't. If Alicia, it felt kind of weird. Yeah, Alicia weighing in on this is going to cause no good. Like, no good will come from that. Like, if at best, like she'll she'll just be ignored. And at worst... I can I can see the group turning on her. Like, how can you not be more offended? How dare you not be more worked up about your daughter? What kind of a mother are you? Yeah. So ultimately, that's what we decided, just to stay out of it. Stay out of the fray. Man, you are just such a, a better person than I am. Like, I can't That's help. not about that. It definitely is, because I would, I would dive headfirst into this with, like, a knife clenched between my teeth. Alicia says every time the, the, the insurance company calls her there to like negotiate the settlement, they, they keep asking for the victim to make a settlement. She's like, you know that she's 11 years old, right? <laughs> I'm not putting her on the phone. This is not happening. Yeah, you're, they have. Yeah, like she has no legal rights. You're talking to me and, and you're going to at least tell me you're getting the full like, OK, well, we're going to pay your hospitals. No, what is what is her insurance authorized to pay out for this? Well, I can't say well, it doesn't matter because you're going to give me the maximum anyway. Yeah. Like the insurance company, there's absolutely, oh, come on. There is no chance they're going to risk a, a, a law a law battle where they're, the driver they're covering hit, 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 a child hit a an 11-year-old in kid in a crosswalk in a school zone and the, and the insurance company is balking at paying. Like there's no yeah. chance they're going to they're gonna sell for that. Yeah. That's, that's not how we live. Uh, okay. You're, you live in a much on. better world than I live in. But I had I'd, I'd completely kept that silent so that you would be getting all of this cold. Oh, oh yeah, you did because I remember I was looking at the <laughs> the show notes and it was on there. Uh, new topic: Russia's morning commute. Like that's an that's that's a, a very <laughs> ironic title. On yeah, you were being cryptic on purpose. That's a very ironic title for what we just discussed. I was expecting like, okay, I guess she has an, an interesting ride to, to school in the morning. Okay, so that brings us to the uh, British word of the day. Does it? 45 minutes in? It does. I, I have been looking British forward to the British word of the today. day today. Uh, I'm going to go with a phrase. So one time I was in a meeting where uh, the leader of the meeting was talking about uh, someone who'd been away from home uh, for 18 months on a Mormon mission, and she was coming back, and he wanted, and he said he wanted to hold a big party. And the, term, the phrase that he used to describe the level of effort and emphasis to put on this was push the boat out. He says, Jasmine's coming back, and we need to push the boat out on this one. And I, and I kind of got out my notebook and wrote that down in my column of, you know, British phrases I didn't know. And I later looked it up. And the phrase push the boat out is something we might say in America as splurge, uh, to be lavish in one's spending or celebrations, to spend okay. a lot of money celebrating something. So my initial reaction from this little story was two things. One is I just assumed that maybe they had a boat. And like you would have felt really dumb if you oh, what is push yeah, the boat? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so where are we like, going to get this boat? <laughs> yeah, what boat? Are you? That's how you should have asked too. It's like, all right, so where's the boat, and how can I help push it out? Like that'd have been hilarious. Uh, it would. Have. Sec- 
the second one is I think you need to talk in a British accent for the duration of this entire segment. Negative, especially Martin Hill. I can't do him very well because he was like awesome British accent. But yes, push the boat out. It, we might say splurge. So maybe next time, uh, like when my wife got her uh, sign language certification, I should have said, hey, honey, you know, you've been working on this for two years. Let's push the boat out. Oh, hey, I've got one. I can actually use that in a sentence right now. Go ahead. Uh, it's going to be my grandmother's uh, birthday coming up next month. And so my parents are planning to push the boat out on her celebration. Uh, as a part of that, we're going to do a Hawaiian style pork pig barbecue we're gonna sink it in the ground and smoke it for like 24 hours and so i spent all day yesterday digging a two foot deep hole with my dad to Holy bury crap. this pig yeah so we're really pushing the Is boat it still out like 100 hole. degrees down there um it was only like 95 it was i mean we needed oh. a jacket <laughs> awesome all right so today's <laughs> british word of the day is push the boat out now, uh, last time you and I had rock, paper, scissored and had selected a couple of books that we were going to read together and yes, you won and you'd chosen the first of the Mistborn novels. Well, actually the second, but we will get into that in a minute um, by Brandon Sanderson. And since you got to pick, I figure I'll let you set the tempo. I got a whole bunch of stuff I want to say, but, but, but you go ahead and drive. So Brandon Sanderson and the Mistborn. So I, I, you totally threw me off by saying this is the second one in the series. You, you have to tell me now. There, there's, there's a previous one. So I started reading into Brandon Sanderson. First of all, I got some personal connection with him. One is that, as you know, he's Mormon. Uh, right. My wife, he's he's about a year older than my wife and I, who are almost exactly the same age. And he used to be in her church congregation in Lincoln, Nebraska, when she was a kid. Oh my gosh! Of course he, of course he was. Ben Rich and knows then, everybody. He went to the same university as us. So he and I were both out on Mormon missions at the same time in the late 90s. And then we both went to Brigham Young University. And he took the same major as my wife. So she doesn't remember him specifically, but they graduated about the same time with the same degree. So they were likely in some of the same classes. Well, remind me to have your wife sign my copy of Miss Point next time we see her. <laughs> anyway, so I had a personal right. connection to him. And I was looking up his career. And this book was, uh, he wrote this book called The Final Empire, which is a terrible title for the first book in like a series of 10 oh, uh, oh but but is it we're gonna come back to that that while he was trying to get his other book published which was the book before this in the same universe which is like a prequel of sorts i forget the title of it i'm guessing you've probably read it uh but it's not it's not related to this story and these characters but it's in the same universe and is chronologically before it uh i've is it the steelheart one not steelheart. yes no it's a uh, drag like dragon steel or something yeah, I've, I've anyway, read, anyway, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think so I've read not, that Not book. technically the second book. You you did write to choose this as the first okay. book. Okay, go ahead. Not technically the second book. This was the first book in a series that was planned to be a series. So, yeah, it's right. not like a it's not like a tacked on sequel. It was he had a deliberate place that he was going to go. All right, so do you want to do an overview, like a plot overview of the book before we get started? Um, uh, there's a couple I, of things kind we of, probably but need I, to I have, talk about. I have, I have a secret thing planned. I don't know if you read into my notes that I have here in the, in the notebook, but I, I have a secret thing planned that will be a plot overview of sorts. So if you want to, if you want to skip the plot overview, we can save that for later. Okay. So um, we will skip the plot overview, but we should put this the the uh, the warning label spoiler on spoiler warning. Yeah, the spoiler yeah. warning. There there will most likely be spoilers for Mistborn the book, and I'm going to do my best not, not to most spoil. Likely. Yeah. Uh, there will probably be minor spoilers for the rest of the series. Like, I'm not going to go into, into great details, but I will talk about things that happen in future books. Not specific events, but just overarching themes and things. So I'm, my intention is not to spoil the series for anybody that plans on continuing it. Um, so we'll see how that goes. 
But one of the things that I like very much about this book, and I, I know that you don't like fiction as, as a rule. And so I picked this book deliberately because it breaks a lot of the tropes that a lot of fiction has. So there's very classic um, arcs that you, uh, I really, so when I started being a pool guy, the like, God, this is going back. I, here's some more background. I'm going to do a Ben style diversion to fill in background. So five or six years ago, I started being, I was a pool guy for a long time, self-employed. And like Ben mentioned in the previous podcast, I had a lot of mental downtime where what I was doing took maybe 10 to 20% of my brain on average. And so the rest of it was just kind of bored. And so I would put headphones in, I would listen to audiobooks. And at first I was listening to a lot of nonfiction, um, which was, um, it's really hit or miss with nonfiction, whether it's interesting or not. And if you get a book that's not interesting and you're forced to listen to it for the full eight hour day while you're working, it can, it can be a real problem. So then I switched to a couple of, um, uh, fiction books. And I found that those held my interest and my, my attention a lot better. So I was, I was reading predominantly fiction during this time. And I started to notice different themes and I was recognizing like, oh, this book isn't very good. And like, but then I listened to this book and it's really good. And I started like really analyzing, well, what's the real difference between the two? And that got me thinking about and reading about uh, different just aspects of writing, like story structure and characterization and plot progression and uh, just all the different things that happen in these books. And by uh, there's a lot of things and tropes that happen that just flow through all the stories that we tell, like um, how the action ramps up in the second act and how different plots conclude and they have different climaxes and the pacing and how you have to have a little bit of wrap-up after that. Just, just different mechanics that writers go through, whether knowingly or not, to make these stories and how the stories work. And in reading through all of that, I realized that Mistborn, one of the reasons that it's so good is because it breaks a whole lot of those rules. And I thought that, that would help you, the person who doesn't like traditional fiction, maybe enjoy this a little more because it is very different from the standard story that you're going to read from any you know random paperback novel you pick up at the bookstore. Okay, I don't feel like I noticed this. Uh, explicitly, so I'm kind of excited to hear what you got to say, but I was cognizant of the fact, you know, I'm trying to be a good sport and read this book, uh, and sometimes I feel like I've I've already seen the code of the Matrix. So I start reading it, and I recognize the patterns from all the books that I've read in the past, and I feel like I can already see the end of it. But a good author can just take me out of that in that I enjoy the journey enough that I don't mind that I've recognized the road. Okay. And so do you feel that Brandon Sanderson did a good job of that in this book? Um, yes. Yes. And I, I have some just some reasons for that that I can go into later. Oh, you know, I just realized, okay, so earlier in the week you texted me that you had finished the book. And then I asked you, the first question I asked you was like, what did you think? And I, I honestly, I didn't want to have the in-depth discussion then. I was just looking for like a thumbs up, thumbs down from you. And I haven't asked you yet. And so I'm just sitting on the edge of my seat so excited. Uh, as a, this is a standard thing that people do is if I enjoy a thing, I also want people that I care about to enjoy the thing. So did you enjoy the thing? Yes. Not Excellent. to the level where I'm ready to read the next book, but I did enjoy <laughs> this book. Okay. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad the book that I forced you to read wasn't terrible. Well, okay. In, in my defense, you last episode, and we have it on tape, said that this was a short book and that it would take 10 hours to read. It was not a short book. It was 541 pages and it took 26 <laughs> hours to read. Okay. Did you, did you listen to it or did you read it? 
But I realized just now when you were talking about the pool boy problem that you and I have different requirements. And and this relates, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but Malcolm Gladwell in his book, The Tipping Point, talked about how they were doing research on what people wanted on their morning commutes and how in a restaurant like McDonald's or something, people were ordering milkshakes in the morning. And they're trying to figure out why they were ordering milkshakes in the morning is because they needed the milkshake to do a job. And they would have a long commute and the milkshake would be thick and slow to drink. And so it would take them basically their whole commute to consume it as opposed to like a coffee or something that you could just drink and it would be gone. So you and I have a different requirement for a book. You know, I have a 20 minute commute and then I have to turn it off and go into work for the day. And you had, you know, an eight hour work day where you needed this thing to be like a milkshake. I, I will know, not need to be good yeah. and slow. I will not deny that was the, uh, the purchasing decision with a lot of the books that I got out of audible while I was uh, doing pools was I was on the subscription and every month you get a credit. And so with that credit, you can get any book in their library. It doesn't matter if the book is five hours long. It doesn't matter if the book is 45 hours long. So I was trying to milk that credit that I got with my subscription for the maximum amount of listening time. And so, yeah, I did mention that it was a short book. And here's the problem is that um, the later books in the series are like 10 hours long each. But I forgot that the first three books are, yeah, they're like 25 hours each. So I, I yeah. do apologize for misleading you no, that no. way. Well, well, I owed you one because I'd also screwed up the first podcast we recorded and I had told you the wrong day. So I, I, I figured we could call it even now. <laughs> we still haven't talked about that and mentioned that I was in my office set up with everything up and oh, running. Man. And I'd called you on Skype a couple of times and you had an answer and I finally texted like, so are we doing this? And you just had completely forgotten about it. Oh, yeah. My bad. <laughs> All right. So you, you'd written... You've written down here that that we were subverting our expectations, and I'm not right. sure I know what you mean by that. Okay. So um, one of the, the easiest and the clearest things, the subversion of expectations, is the training or the amplification of the power that the main character gets in the course of a fantasy book. So in typical fantasy, there is always the protagonist, and they're fighting against the antagonist. And whether that be physical combat or political combat or whatever, the protagonist typically gains experience and power slowly throughout the book. And one of the things is there's always the third-party mentor or some external source where they're acquiring this power. And a standard trope in fantasy is that this power increase comes in drips and drabs. Like they work very hard and then they slowly attain these new skills or these new perspectives or new knowledge or whatever the thing is. And they just slowly acquire it until they build a ramp and they train and they become good enough to then overcome the antagonist. And this book subverts the expectations, and they almost even mention it explicitly that they're subverting expectations when the main character, Vin, meets up with um, the mentor figure, which is Kelsier, in the book. And like he just, the first night that they're out training together, he lays it all on the line. It's like, well, this is everything that you need to know, and all that's left is practice. And like she even mentions at one point, like, so what are you keeping back? Like, what are you going to hold over me so you have power over me? And he, like, says, like, that's not how I work. Like, either you're you're with me or you're not, and I'm just going to give you everything up front right now. And so that was one of the first and most blatant, like, subversion of, well, we're okay. a, a reader of fantasy novels is expecting this to be a slow arc. And she then goes from this 14-year-old street kid to, like, a full-blown assassin in the course of, like, a chapter. All right, so I have two theories about that. One, I see exactly what you're saying, and I agree with you in a respect, but I, I saw it differently. I saw that Sanderson decided that he was going, what the central conflict of the book was going to be for our protagonist, Vin, mm -hmm. and that was trusting people. 
Yes. That's the next bullet that I think I have in here, is because we've subverted the expectations of the typical fantasy, like you just mentioned, the main point of the book is not the external conflict, it's the internal conflict. It is the how we get to see the transformation that Vin goes through as a character. Because So it's almost the fantasy plot and everything is great and interesting and uh, very well done, but at the same time, we care about the characters because they have such such relatable human emotions like his uh, one of the reasons i love brandon sanderson as an author so well is all of his characters feel like real people with real flaws and like you you really empathize with their plights and like anybody like any nerd has felt that kind of loneliness and that that ostracism that i think the main character feels for different reasons but everybody can sympathize with, with feeling like the outsider and wanting to be a part of the group and that just makes us so emotionally vested in these characters. So yeah, I, our protagonist Vin. So our protagonist Vin, her um, conflict comes from her upbringing. She, uh, uh, I, I can't remember what happened to her mother. Her father like raised her in this really antagonistic, or, or no, she can't remember her father and her brother raised her in like this antagonistic way where he told her just don't trust anyone, everyone's going to betray you, and she became a street rat and then got recruited into like these thieving teams and where they would always stab each other in the back and everyone and she just lived this really uncertain, unsteady life that led to her basically adopting as her core set value that everyone. Uh, I forget how it says it in the book. Everyone will betray you at some point. Yes. And that's the whole idea is that her upbringing was, and her brother was very, very hard on her because, well, there's reasons, but part of that was she was a little girl in a very dog-eat-dog world where they're living on this tiny margin in this very uh, dictatorship, a very hardcore dictatorship society where they're not supposed to exist in the first place. And if she's going to have any shred or any chance of, of, any kind of life, happy or not, she needs to be just cutthroat, ready to fend for herself and not care about anyone because and other people she, are just going to drag her down. A niche way to do that, since she recognized she couldn't overpower people and didn't recognize at the time she was using magic, she, her defense was sometimes just being inobtrusive and easy going and you know giving in easily as just a self-defense it would shorten her beatings or get people to ignore her and not consider her a threat well yeah and you can make the comparison to um, nature like there's animals that survive by being the biggest the strongest there's animals that survive by being the fastest or the, the most athletic and then there's the ones that survive through pure camouflage she's trying to be right just so yeah, under the she's radar she's definitely a camouflage kind of animal yeah exactly and that's one of the like recurring things to the whole thing is that she's just so sneaky and so quiet and so aware. She's she's this timid mouse that realizes that she could be crushed underfoot. So you'd mentioned how Kelsier recognizes in her the power to become like him and that he's going to be her mentor. And then you said, then it's just a matter of getting ready. And I, so I was considering this. I'm like, okay, so we need a training montage. You know, like in a movie, this is the time for the training montage. What's the book equivalent of the training montage? And just as I was starting to think this, basically the, the book ended, and I think this book's in five parts that are like acts in a film or a play. Right, And that's when we basically closed the, the curtain on part one and then opened the curtain on part two. We skipped forward a month in time, and now she's relatively adept with all these new skills she's been introduced to. Right. And the opening scene of the second part is her and Kelsey are having a, a sparring match out in the night and just beating the crap out of each other and just really showcasing what the 
<laughs> just just how it, that's one of the another thing that I like fiction is like I like imagining like they're just people that are just so far beyond with these capabilities what normal people are and so they're flying through the air at night and like winging pieces of metal at each other and like it just comes down to this like almost battle of wits to see who can position themselves better than the other and it's just a really interesting and thoughtful way to use uh, the powers that they have again yes which leads into one of the other ideas you've written down where i think a, a magic system if you're going to have a fantasy world and some type of way of interfacing with some otherworldly power that it has to set up dilemmas that allow for creative application of the powers in an interesting way that just so, is in- go ahead right and that's and that, i put those in the show notes because this is uh, like i'm not going to take credit for this at all uh, part of when I was reading through all of uh, the different story structures and things of these books that I liked and didn't like, one of the things that I came across was Brandon Sanderson has a full write-up of what he thinks of as hard versus soft magic systems. And, and he talks about the three laws. And if you're okay, can we talk about these three laws? Like, Absolutely. Think, In fact, great. I had not done the research you're doing now, and my wife had. And she's like, hey, if Josh doesn't bring this up, you should. And she told me about hard versus soft magic systems. And I said, that is fascinating. <laughs> I'll let Josh do that. Excellent. And yeah, it's right here in the show notes. So um, we're going to call them Sanderson's Three Laws of Magic and Storytelling. And that's the hard versus the soft. Well, I guess we have to define it. All right. So what Brandon Sanderson considers hard versus soft magic systems is how well defined the rules are. So like a hard magic system is something that, I mean, it obviously doesn't exist and it can't exist in the real world, but you can apply real world logic and strictures to it. There's, it's not this ill-defined thing that, oh, they can, like Harry Potter is a very soft magic system because they can, they go to school and they learn things and they have to do spells sometimes, but sometimes they just have to point their wand and the things happen. Other times they can just wave their hands and big things happen. There is no clear definition of what these wizards in the Harry Potter universe can and can't do and right. so then it just I turns into this you. yeah you should start describing hard magic systems i'm like oh so you mean like harry potter absolutely not Matt, harry potter is a very soft magic system sorry soft i meant soft, soft. got it yeah a very hard magic system is one that has these strict rules and um uh, allomancy which is the the magic that they introduced in the mistborn book is what brandon sanderson considers to be a, a hard magic system it has clearly defined rules and limits uh, not defined to the point where like, oh, well, this amount of metal can be burned for this amount of power. Like there's no math associated with it. But you as the reader have a clear idea of the limitations and the, the, the you know, the boundaries of the system that these characters are having to work with. So you know that they can't just pull this, you know, out of their hat. Just out of nowhere, Harry Potter will throw this spell that has herefore too been unknown that he has and then resolve the conflict. No, they have to work with the tools that they have and we understand what those tools are. But he does reserve a bit of mystery around it. Like, okay, we understand a lot about these eight elements, but then there's like three others that we don't fully understand. Oh, you see, and that's, uh, this is why you've got to read the second and the third books. This is, Kelsier says it multiple times in, in the first book. Um, and Brandon Sanderson has said it in multiple articles. His core theme when it comes to all of his Mistborn novels is there's always another secret. So, right. Yeah, yes. there's always some at, he has it. It's I clear started he, keeping like a tally of them saying that phrase. It was I was up to like eight and I lost count. <laughs> so he, he knows Brandon Sanderson, the author, knows everything about this. But the way that he is putting it to us as the readers, it's it's clear that he's holding. There's things that he knows that there, he's holding back that are unknown in the universe by the characters. And that just makes it so interesting to, to discover and, and see these things. Um, so anyway. 
going back to the three laws, knowing the difference between a hard versus a soft magic system, Brandon Sanderson's first law of magic and storytelling is an author's ability to solve conflict with magic in a satisfying way is directly proportional to how well the reader understands that magic. And what that means is, like, again, if you've ever seen a movie or read a book where there's this huge conflict and there's this big climactic battle that's happening, and then one of the characters does something with their magic that they've never done before, that has never been explained, and that just totally resolves the situation, it's very unsatisfying. That's uh, that's take a look at, um, oh, what is it? The latest Star Wars movie that just came out. Was it uh, the, the Last Jedi? Jedi. The, the Last Jedi, where the closing scene with all of the bad guy, or with Kylo Ren having this lightsaber fight with uh, uh, Luke Skywalker, and then we comes to turn out Luke Skywalker's not actually there. He's a force projection from another planet, which is a power that they've never explained. It's a power that Jedi have never had, and that su- super hardcore power nerds are all up in arms about. Right. And most it was people very are unsatisfying. Dis- it was very unsatisfying. Because then you're feeling like, well, if he can just do that, why haven't they solved all these problems already? Sure. The same as like in the prequels when R2-D2 used the rockets to fly. We're like, why didn't you do that before? Yeah, exactly. It just when, when the characters do these things, not only is it an unsatisfying resolution to the current conflict, it, it breaks the rule. It feels, like, it feels like they're breaking their own rules. And so yeah. it, it offends us as, as the reader. Okay. So, so one, one of the things I got to give Brandon Sanderson props for is that while he's describing that he has this law that it's important that the readers understand the, the rules of the magic system and wh- how well they understand it is directly proportional to how satisfied they are with it when the conflicts resolve using it. He also doesn't like, all right, class, welcome to learning how to use my magic system 101. You know, sit there and I'm going to read the whole thing to you. He just kind of gives it to you a bit at a time right. until you feel like you've learned it. Well, and that's in if you look into writing or any kind of uh, creative medium, the like the number one rule is show don't tell. Like if you ever read a book or seen a movie where they have long exposition dumps where some character is just talking for the sake of explaining to us the viewer, and they would have absolutely no reason to be saying that to the other characters, it's also unsatisfying. He yes. does a great way of explaining the magic system and the weaknesses and the strengths and the limitations. By showing the action that takes place, like, incidentally throughout the plot. Sure. And, and he does both. And I think it's necessary to do both. It is, in some cases, yes. Like, you have to, This is part of the reason. This is one trope that exists in fantasy that I don't know if you can really get away from. Is you always have to have one character that doesn't know anything. So that it gives an excuse for another character to explain it to them. But really, they're explaining it to us. So what's the second law? All right, so uh, Sanderson's second law is that weaknesses or limits or costs are more interesting than the powers themselves. Ah, just like we were talking about last time. Exactly. It's the boundaries that are placed in the characters are more interesting than the powers powers themselves. Again, like, we go back to the Harry Potter reference where, well, what is the limit? Because, like, in the first movie you see, like, they're learning these spells and trying to say, like, oh, you have to... You pronounce the word very specifically. But then we see, like, the hardcore big wizards. They're just pointing at each other and crap happens. So, like, is it important to pronounce it correctly or is it not? So, you can't have it both ways. Um, And in Mistborn, they're... uh, Like, the limits that they have are mostly described in, like, the... In the fuel that they use, which is the metals that they consume, and the speeds at which they they are burned or used, uh, I, that is a limit, and they use it sometimes. But it's it, that is kind of ill defined. They, they always mention like, oh well, tin burns slower, so you can just keep tin on for all the time. 
but at the same time, they don't really put a put a number to it, or you don't have a good sense of okay, well, we know that tin's going to last longer, but like how much longer? We know that pewter burns fast, but like how fast? There is a limit there, and you just have this understanding that there is a gas tank, and I think he mostly. I might be reading too much into it, but I feel like he only pulls that out when he needs there to be a limit, like in a situation like to try to increase the tension, like, oh, and she's low on metals and all my metal vials are gone. It's like, okay, well, yeah, I guess that increases the tension that she's running out of gas. But at the same time, it's not defined well enough for me, the the reader, to really get an idea of how dire the situation is. But I, I, I kind of have to look past that one. That's a little a tiny pet peeve. I get I it. I get it. You know, it's just a, it's just this easy button for creating conflict. Now, I will say, um, it. I, I complain about that for the first book, but the second book, the fact that you have to have metals to burn the metals to get the powers, um, there are things that happen in the second book where that becomes a much more pertinent um, fact. Like, it's much more important uh, how much metal they have or if they have more metals on them to be consumed for the fuel. How many times gonna... have you read this series? Uh, I've read through the series probably three times. So I was not reading this first book with the handicap of any of that other knowledge that you're talking about. <laughs> well, and that's that's probably good because I, you can never... This is one of the biggest problems with books is that you can never read them twice because you, you've already, you already know how it's going to end, so you can never feel that same level of tension. Um, as a minor diversion, uh, the best book series that I've ever read was the Wheel of Time series. It's 13 or 14 books. And like I feel like those characters were my friends, but I can never go back and get the, the feeling of reading through them for the first time. So, yeah. Anyway, Finished by Brandon Sanderson, by the way. Finished by... this is, And that's how I got Brandon Sanderson's name in my library. And I'm like, this guy did an excellent job wrapping up this book series. What else has he written? And I have since read everything that he's ever written. Huh. The only uh, author I do that with is John Grisham, we'll, but I don't think we'll read any of his stuff lately, anytime soon. All right, so what's the third law? <laughs> All right, so Sanderson's third law is expand on what you have already before you add something new. If you change one thing, you change the world. And I think an excellent way to illustrate this point is going back again to The Last Jedi, the that Star Wars movie that I think everybody kind of agrees like was kind of a letdown after the re, the You're successful right. it violated the first one. all three of these laws. It did violate all three of these laws, and the biggest one was uh, the scene in the Last Jedi. We should have spo- put spoiler warnings for that too because we ended up talking about it. Spoiler warnings for Last Jedi, everybody. <laughs> but um, there's a scene in that where the lady, the one lady left over the big cruiser, turns the ship around and then jumps to light speed and rams it into the bad guy ship. Yeah. Great and, right, so change so, the entire universe. Right. And so for, first of all, I, I want to make this clear. I really like that scene. Like when I was in the theater, I saw it in the theater and like the way they did the sound was great because the sound completely oh. cuts out and then the bass comes up like from a sub audible level and like you can feel the place rattling before you can actually hear it. That was really well yeah. done. It was a very powerful like visual scene. However, for the Star Wars nerds, you realize, well, why haven't they just had droids fly fighters at light speed into enemy ships like this entire time? This is like you just violated every rule of ship to ship combat that you've set up in this universe since the universe was begun. No one ever thought of this before. Right. Like, oh, wow, that's an amazing thing. Like that should be like if you're a rebellion, like that's the idea. You're the rebellion. You're the underdog. You're fighting against this monolithic power. That should be the number one go to like tool in your toolkit. It's like, oh, we'll just take an X-Wing, we'll slap an R2 unit in the thing with uh, with no self-preservation in it, programmed in it whatsoever, and have him light speed right into the Death Star over and over again until the thing is just slag. Yeah. 
Ugh, so anyway. that's the third. That's the third law. That's the third. You have law. to work within the limitations you've set up in your universe, rather than going someplace new. Exactly. If you, as the author, can't figure out a way to resolve the conflict without breaking your own rules, uh, then like, what are you even doing? Like, then you've put your characters in an impossible situation in the first place. Like, it's more interesting to see a clever resolution of of this conflict in a way that's unexpected that you would ha- that would be difficult to do than it would be to, to pull some new trick out of the hat and introduce a whole new thing. Because again, now, if I ever go see the third Star Wars movie, all I'm going to be thinking about is any time they have sh- any kind of ship-to-ship battle, I'm like, why aren't they just light-speeding into the other ship? Right. So let me, let me restate the rules and see if I understand them. So the first one is you need your audience to understand your system, and the better they understand it and you work within the limits, the more satisfying it's going to be to them. Right. If the reader or the viewer understands the the limits and the boundaries of the system, then they will understand when the characters use that to resolve their conflict. Okay. So then the second law is like, but you have to give them weaknesses, uh, and that that's more interesting than their unlimited power. Right, which is the same thing we talked about last time with the, you have to have boundaries. Restrictions create creativity. Yes. Exactly. And then the third law is... Work within the universe that you've established because if you change something, you've changed the whole world. Exactly. Because if you change something, then people can't help but go back and retroactively apply that change to everything that you've done up to this point and see how you've kind of broken your own rules. Okay. So I took this, I took it kind of differently in my approach to it because I knew you were going to have like this big picture approach since you'd read like the whole series and everything. And I wrote down like quotes where I thought he touched on interesting ideas. So I want to kind of dip into a few of these. That actually sounds really good. Let's do that. Okay. So one was in the prologue where um, Kelsier is talking to Breeze um, and he's offering him some nobleman's food. And and Breeze says to Kelsier, new foods, uh, new tastes are like new ideas, young men. The older you get, the harder they are to stomach. Okay, so for, I have to point out, he's not talking to Breeze in that scene. Um, he's talking Sorry. to... Yeah, he's... Uh, I can't Menace? Again. Menace. It is Menace, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so he's talking to Menace, and Menace basically tells him, you know, I'm not going to try a new food because I know what I like. And, man, I this hit me so deep because there are so many times in my professional life, in my church life, in my family life, where I'm struggling against this idea where when you're talking to somebody old, they're just set in their ways. And I loved how elegant this little vignette was. New tastes are like new ideas, young man. The older you get, the harder they are to stomach. That was so true. I love that. Well, that is very true to human nature, um, it, but it is something I disagree with. And personally, I try to keep that um, out of my brain. I, I, this is a diversion, but I remember one of the podcasts we like very much, uh, CGP Grey. A guy talks on that. I, I like a lot of the ideas that he has. And one of the things that he says in one of his videos, it's not really a throwaway line, but he talks about it for only like two or three minutes. And he says um, something that your opinions and your thoughts are separate from you. It's when you confuse your opinions and your thoughts as being a part of you that problems happen. So if you always want to be right, you always have to be willing to change your mind. And so I'm always very aware of myself of if I'm starting to push back on an idea, I like to ask myself, well, why am I pushing back on this idea? Is it because I disagree with it or is it because it conflicts with something I already think? And is that really the best reason or the best thing to be doing in this scenario? But it is, like you mentioned, very, very human nature to become, especially the older you get, you just become more and more set in this mindset and very resistant to change, especially from the outside. 
Yes. So, yeah, in my professional life particularly, there's been so many times where I see a good idea that can't get its chance until a few choice people retire or die. That's ugh, that's frustrating. You always want to hope that if it's a good yeah. idea and you can quantify it, that you want to be able to take to those people and somehow logically work them through, okay, you're being irrational. I can prove that this is better. And it's it's always nothing but frustrating. Right. They're just like, nope, I don't, yeah. I'm not trying new food. No, I don't okay. like it. So another theme I, I found throughout the book that was kind of, was kind of interesting, but not necessarily germane to our time, was this idea of social warfare. You know, one of the very at the heart of the conflict of the book is this nobleman, the upper class versus the lower class, and right. what happens when they when they mix, and how the upper class thinks they're better, or the lower class doesn't think they could ever be as good as the upper class, or what happens when there's half breeds, and what you know their value for life, and all the kind of things that go along with that conflict. Well, what's interesting, I actually have that in the notes as well as a different thing is what you're talking about, this class struggle with what the noblemen think, what the ska think, and their interactions and how they're forbidden and all that. And part of that was this, um, the main antagonist, the Lord Ruler, the dictator, the immortal like sliver of infinity that rules this society, has built that into them. Like He created this faith and is leveraging okay. it as a tool to kind of keep the ska down. Like everybody so is taught this. So this class warfare is the basis of his power. It's one, yes, it's, um, I mean, that's classic dictatorship, right? Is if you make everybody focus on something else other than the fact that they're being oppressed. And so you have the ska just beat down and you tell them, like, you belong here. This is where you go. And the noblemen are on top and like, this is, you belong here. This is where you go. Your job is to keep them where they're supposed to be. And it's really clever that his entire faith is built around this idea that, well, he's untouchable. But, you know, anything that you play within this playground is fine. Like, he's he's up here doing his thing. You guys do your thing down here and just, just keep it that way. Okay. So, yeah, I found that interesting throughout. But there wasn't anything I found particularly insightful about that conflict. I kept waiting for it. I kept waiting for him to have some kind of insight or idea that would bring something new to this age-old human conflict between the upper and the lower class. But well, I, ultimately, I didn't feel like I found it. I mean, up, yeah, the the class warfare and the class structure thing is they actually talk about that a little bit more in the in the second and third books, but it doesn't go into the depth probably that you want it to. Um, there's a lot that's been said in the zeit like in just the zeitgeist in general of class warfare and you know upper versus lower, middle, whatever. I think his uh, more of the message that he was doing was um, is a lot of the the core book and the plotline hangs on this idea of religion and faith and how people. Uh, I don't want to say use that, but how it can be used for uh, objectives other than just uh, what the stated purpose is. Like, because there's the Lord Ruler who has his steel ministry and his religion, which, um, I mean, you can see is this constructed thing to try to make the society as stable as long-term as possible. And then, yes. Kel and then Kelsier combats that by kind of creating his own rogue religion and like instilling it into the people to give them that um, the moral foundation to to rise up and fight against the oppression that they're they're suffering when for thousands of years they've just like taken it and he's finally given them this this other idea and instilled it in them in such a way that they take action on it so one thing i think sanderson does really well that i like is uh 
when you're setting up a new universe, you can just like redefine everything and create new vocabulary for anything and not count on anyone bringing with them any previous knowledge. And in that way, you don't have any burden of previous knowledge. Like everything's fresh, but it's almost like too much. And I like that he brings, lets us bring with us our own ideas and vocabulary and stuff. But in a few ways, he introduces unique stuff. You know, he renames a few things. Like the names of the metals are mostly metals we recognize, but some of them are different. And uh, he introduces things like curses that are unique to the world. Since the Lord Ruler is supposed to be this deity, then they curse in the name of the Lord Ruler, which I, I really dig that kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I especially dig the – there's one time Kelsier says it. It's like, don't swear by, by his name. Every time you do, you just acknowledge him as your god. Right, and he's not, and that's what I'm trying to do is break that down. Yes, so and that's, in, that's in, part of the thing that he's fighting against is this idea that even by swearing by him, you're acknowledging this, this, in, this indestructible, infinite thing. It's just hilarious. Yeah, so in, the, in part one was the first time that Kelsier had said to Vin, there's always another secret. Uh, and as his, Kelsier is trying to get get his team together to start his plan of insurrection of the Lord Ruler and the Final Empire, uh, he says something that I've said to my kids recently that relates to my unified parenting theory. He says, they says, all right, Kelsier, what's the plan? And he says, I don't have a plan. I have a framework. You don't gather a group like this and just tell them what to do. Yeah, that's and, a good one. And this is what I've been... This is what I've been telling my kids as I'm as they're getting to level three, where they're starting to be able to be independent and make good decisions as long as they understand the purpose and where we're going. And that is, they think of stuff I could, I'm not capable of thinking of. You know, they have a creative idea, they have a, a unique approach, uh, something interesting that I, that I recognize. I don't just bring them as an extension of myself, but as an independent individual with the power to come up with their own ideas. And I love that that was incorporated into Kelsey's character. Well, and it's just, I mean, that's a good leadership trait. Like, if you take nothing else away from this, like, you can see that Kelsier has some really strong leadership qualities. And that's one that I wish I had heard of, you know, back in the day when I was in a leadership position. Like, you don't get a group of experts together and tell them what to do. Like, that's that's a lesson that any, like, new young professional needs to take to heart. Like, these people know a lot better than you. Like, you, you, you come with, with big, broad, general things and have them help you fill in the details. If for no other reason, then they'll be way more vested in it if they feel like they had a hand in planning it. So Vin points out later that while Kelsier has the ability to use all eight kinds of elements, he and all of his followers can only use, like, one, uh, he, he didn't take his own medicine from this phrase because he seemed to think that he knew how to use all eight better than him. And that becomes her power that gives her the capacity to exceed Kelsier. Yeah, this this kind of lesson that, like, acknowledging that, well, they know a little bit better. And, like, you say that, I don't know if Kelsier ever, ever says that he's he's better at it than everybody. I think he's, he acknowledges himself as Mistborn, and he's the most powerful. But I don't think he ever, like, comes out and says that he's better at any one given thing than the others I are. I guess you're right. He does kind of acknowledge one time, he says, like, oh, I want to go train with Ham. And then he kind of looks at her like, but you already know how to burn pewter. Right. Yes. And, exactly. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. It's not a. It's not a, mal a malicious concept that he has. It's just this idea that he that there's no more to learn. Like he, he's like you said, he's not taking his own medicine there. There's always another secret. He feels like, oh, well, I, I, I have pewter. I've burned pewter. I get it. Like that's all I need to know. What but else he, do like, I need to know? Right. But then and then later in the book, though, he's in that that fight with the the Inquisitor, and then Vin's just kind of a, a, a spectator for that fight. And she notes how, like, he is just the absolute master of iron and steel, like, pulling and pushing metals around. 
and like unequivocally, he's the best person that's ever been shown in the books to that point at that specific at those specific things, and those are things that he trained her in. So he never comes out and says that he's better at other people. I think he just doesn't understand that there's more to learn about the others, but and he thinks that with steel and iron, like that's that's the end all beat all. Having those two, but I alone feel like sets him up. That's her power. She comes in and she has the capacity to be like Kelsier, but one of her advantages is that she's humble enough to recognize that there are people who know better than him in certain areas and she wants to learn from them. Ultimately, she does surpass Kelsier in capability. Like by the end right. of the first book, you can see that she's um, slightly better than Kelsier was. And then they, I mean, they really drive that home in the second and third books. Like it, like again. He's obeying his three laws, so it, it's all it all feels like it fits in the system, and he's not breaking any rules. But you can see, kind of what like if Kelsier was uh, like I don't know, it, it, if Kelsier feels like a rough draft, like you're reading the first book and like, well, he's the end all beat all. But by the end, you realize, okay, well, no, he could have been better. Like Vin is uh, gotta be just the absolute best that it could be, just the refined version of what Kelsier could have been. So you um, you'd mentioned how he uh, he had the ability to push and pull really well, and there, I think in the prologue, there you know, Sanderson's establishing the world. He ha- he does this little vignette where he go. It's like the first ten minutes of a Bond movie where he goes into uh, Noble's house and they have some elementers there, and he just kicks everyone's butt and assassinates a bunch of people, steals what he wants, and takes off. He gets hurt a little bit, but mostly he just kicks butt and takes names. And and my my imagination of his powers was thinking of Magneto from the X Men universe. <laughs> like you like if you wanted to catch this man and imprison him, he would have to be in a plastic prison because he's just so powerful that any metal anywhere near him just makes him so that he can defeat everyone. Right, and you think that right up until the point where they make Vin take some mystery metal and burn it, and then all of her other metals are gone. And then they can leave her wherever they want because she's just a person now. Right. And that's just and that's just part of the rules of the universe that they're teaching us that allow him. It's it's that was rule two of Brandon Sanderson's three rules. It was give the limitations are more interesting than than the powers. Exactly. And they do they hint at it throughout the book that there is more to know about the metals because they talk about what the 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 ten metals or whatever. But then yeah. they all. But they also mention how all the metals come in pairs and larger groups of four. And ten is yeah. Not and then it starts turning into color coded tables, which I dig. Yeah, and you, yeah, exactly. Because it's a well defined hard magic system with logic to it. You can you, like you start laying it out or drawing it out on paper. You realize, well, well hang on a second, we're, we're missing some pieces here. So for a minute, I thought I was smarter than the author. I, I got to admit, I just kept reading it, but I'd written down that like, okay, doesn't he know that tin, which is used to do this one thing? And pewter are virtually the same thing. Like some alloys of of pewter are 99% tin. Right. And I feel like I'm smarter than the author. Like he thinks pewter and tin are two separate metals when they're actually mostly exactly the same metal. But then later on he acknowledges that and just talks about the necessity of having the right alloy in order to execute it. And and I was just like, okay, whatever. Yeah. Well, alimatic alloys versus just random what we call. Yeah. So another one of my random ideas I wrote down was in part three where Kelsier starts to introduce the Vin, the idea of snapping. Uh, snapping being a term he introduces that means the time in their life when something stressful happened that brought out their ability to use their elementic powers. Yes. So I immediately thought of the origin story for Deadpool. <laughs> yeah. There, so that's like a, a snapping 
point right there. Right. There were some bad guys that were running like this shell medical experimentation company and they would bring people in and torture them to death and they would either die or they would snap one or the other and then you would have a new superhero or a dead person. Yeah, they... Yeah, that's... Okay, so... For hardcore comic book nerds, that's not the greatest example because you realize... If you know the comic book history behind Deadpool, you realize that what they did in that facility wasn't anything like what they were saying they were doing in that facility. Like, Wade Wilson never had mutant powers or mutant potential. They actually injected it into him and brought it out. All right, but that's the way they did it in the Deadpool movie. That's how that's how they explained it in the Deadpool movie, but that's not really what happened. Like, that's all. there's a whole... Dude, that's a whole thing. Okay, so here's another example. Uh, how about from the movie Unbreakable, you know, where Mr. Glass is trying to cause accidents to reveal who the survivors are and potentially uncover a superhero? So I think that's also a little different. Like, I don't mean to be contrary. Uh, I feel like I'm always just telling you, no, I don't think that's right. But in that case, it's more of he had those powers, but he had never been in a situation where he was observed to have, you know, above average capability for not taking harm. Like, there's a flashback later in the movie where you show him in a car accident and he basically just gets up and walks away from it. But, like, he says that he was hurt from it. Um, so it's just one of those things. I think Mr. Glass was trying to push the the disasters up to see who would survive this level. Who's going to survive this threshold of destruction? So the thing I liked about Vin was that she had uh, she'd snapped but not realized it, and she called she had her own name for her powers. She called it my luck, and she recognized that there was a limit to it, and that she could kind of store it up under over time. She didn't understand why. She didn't understand the limits of it, but she knew that she could influence people's emotions. Which is, I mean, just, I mean, mwah, hats off to Brandon Sanderson for finding a way to explain, uh, to show that there is a kid that has this ability. And at some point, she recognized not everybody has this capability. So what vocabulary would you even have? Like, imagine a six-year-old being able to, to perform magic. And eventually they realize that not everybody can do this. Like, they wouldn't have the words to describe what they were doing. Especially in her situation where she couldn't even talk to anybody about it because of her trust issues we've already discussed. Right. And so he he did a great job, I think, coming up with the perfect ways to describe what she was doing that made sense to both us, the reader, with the knowledge of what Alamancy was in the universe. And that would make sense for her to have come with come up with on her own. So that brings me to the next point I want to talk about. In part one, when Kelsey was trying to get the team together and he gets Vin, I think he rescues her or something. I can't remember. And she, <laughs> they invite her to stay as part of the team. And she's still in her is early in her character arc and still just in, innately mistrusts people. And so within the context of her mistrust, she says, and I wrote it down, I'll stay, not because I trust you, but because I want to see what happens. So early in her character arc, the only thing that's keeping her around is like morbid curiosity. Like, you guys are interesting. I'm going to stick around. Well, and then she mentions it, too. Like, she needs the knowledge. And then, then there was that whole scene where he's laying out all the information to her. And then they're in the carriage. And she's like, well, what are you What are you not telling me? Like, well, what's the part right. that you're holding back? Right. And he's like, so she hey, also hey. recognizes that he has seen in her that she has the same ability, but she doesn't know anything about it. So she wants that from him. Right. And when she just assumes that he's going to use that to lord over her to get her to do what he wants to be a part of this crew. And like, it's this huge leap of faith that she takes when he finally like, like, here, here's some money. There's the door. If you don't believe in what we're doing, then just go because that's not that's not what's happening. And there's no other way for me to make you understand that I'm not doing this to you. 
Right. So that's right at the end of part one, that scenario you just described. And then they skip to part two, which is, like I said, the book equivalent of a training montage. Now we skip ahead. They're doing something together. And it shows that she's started to master these powers and starting to be kind of powerful. Right. And then she's also in the situation long enough at that point that she starts to recognize that maybe there is something different. And now it's not the knowledge that she wants to stick around for. It's this belonging that she's always been missing. Yeah, I like that. All right, so at the end of part two, um, the, the, it ends with a minor setback, which made me feel like, as I was reading it, I was thinking, okay, this reminds me when I was playing Final Fantasy on the NES, and, and there were areas of the map you could go to that you weren't supposed to go to yet because you hadn't leveled up sufficiently. I can't believe we've had, we completely blew over this. I know exactly what you're talking about, but that's part of my subversion of expectations. Like in any other book, like the main characters sit down and they have a planning meeting and they lay out the plan. And then you expect that point. The book is just about the plan executing flawlessly. Carry out the plan. Yeah. And it just happens and it works out. And maybe there's a hiccup or two here and there, but no problem. But no, like a huge major aspect of their plan is completely and utterly wiped out at the end of part two. And there's just, again, go ahead. So I uh, I think I'm thinking the one before that. So she basically she she decides to follow Kelsier one night, and he's going to the the castle, and oh, she yeah. follows him. And about halfway there, he catches her, and he's like, "I'm just going in to do a you know a recon run and see if I can see what's in the secret vault." And she's like, "I want to go," and he's like, "No," and and she's like, "Yes," and she wins. And he's like, "Okay," and maybe he thinks she can help him get in where he hasn't been able to before. So they go in together, and the guards focus on her and kick her butt and she barely makes it out alive. And and it exactly made me feel like that where like okay, I wasn't supposed to go to the, that level yet. I'm not le- I'm not high enough level to and I got my butt beat by the mini bosses. <laughs> right? And then so then there's this whole point in time where Vin our main character is like on the brink of death. She's in versus- rehab. Yeah. And again, that's that is subversion of expectations. Just like in Final Fantasy, you know, your party carries out your dead corpse and goes to the nearest town and resurrects you, and you're like, oh, okay, well, I guess we weren't. We'll 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 diddle around in the lower levels for, until we level up enough before we go back to that area. Well, and that always tickled my brain too. Like, and that's one another good way that Brandon Sanderson introduces this idea in the book that Vin is important for reasons that she doesn't understand. Is yeah, she's in the scenario where it's Kelsier and her versus three Inquisitors. And two of the Inquisitors go after her. Like, they realize that she's the apprentice, right? Like, she's the little one. She didn't, like, do anything special or mad or amazing. Why are they focused so hard on her? Yeah. yeah. They recognize she's the bigger threat. Not she, she hasn't. He hasn't realized that yet. <sighs> okay, so you can't, you must, you, maybe you missed that part too. She's not the bigger threat. The Inquisitor, there was this whole, like, little subplot that they kind of blasted through where the Inquisitors were trying to gain dominance in the religious organization that the Lord Ruler had set up over the uh, Ministry of Orthodoxy. And yes. they recognized that she was um, the kid of the head of the Ministry of Orthodoxy. So if they could have picked that up. Right. So the reason that they were fixed on her is because they wanted her as the physical evidence that they needed to um, oh, for political right. leverage. That went over my head. Yeah. So I didn't she realize was, they were trying to capture her. I thought they were trying to kill her. No, they wanted her for political reasons, for the internal political struggle that was happening. Okay. But then Sazed shows up, uh, Deus Ex Machina, and, and saves her. And that moves us, that keeps the plot moving forward. Well, and it, yeah, uh, it, it does feel a little Deus Ex there, but it is an interesting way to introduce his powers with uh, Ferrochemy. Right. Now, you, you jumped ahead a little bit, but at the end of part three is where the, the plan fails. Okay. 
Yes, Everything where, goes wrong. Five five thousand Ska soldiers of their eight thousand army are dead, and their plan of like an open uh, um, rebellion that will overthrow the Lord Ruler and his army is completely destroyed. Right, and it's it's a great way that they they get through that because all of most of the main characters are like, okay, well we're done. So I wonder what's going to happen next, and that's kind of what we're feeling as the reader too. Like, yeah, you guys are toast. What what, what where do you go from here? What's the rest yeah, of this it, book about? I've still got three hundred pages here. Yeah, it's a good way to kind of give us this hopeless feeling and think, okay, this this isn't happening. Um, and also throughout this time, so we're you know we're halfway through the book and you can kind of see Vin starting to her uh, the central conflict of the book being her mistrust versus trust uh, take place and I wrote written down a quote where Kelsier was teaching her about this where there was this um, flashback plot of Kelsier when he had been taken prisoner and they believed that he'd been betrayed by his wife Mare um, and she's like well why don't you just hate her why don't you look back on her with with um, vengeance because she betrayed you and he says do you stop loving someone just because they betray you? I don't think so. That's what makes the betrayal hurt so much. Yeah, that's um, very profound. And you can apply that to a lot of different things. But yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it gets you right in the feels. Definitely. So yeah, then then the, the, whole, the whole plot's thrown on its ear. And then we kind of recover. And we're like, well, hey, maybe we could, uh, maybe there's something else we could, maybe there's another way we could still accomplish our goal here. And the team hasn't gone anywhere. So let's let's give it another try. Now, I want to ask you, because it never says explicitly in the book, do you think Kelsier intended for his ultimate outcome all along or only after this midway failure? Mm, That's an interesting point. When was Kelsier... I think Kelsier uh, planned for it before that, before the midpoint failure. When did he decide he needed to die a martyr's death in order for his cause to succeed? So very early in the book, he there are scenes where he's asking Sazed about different uh, religions. Like uh, there was yes. a point where he was depressed. Yes, so you can tell distance. he's researching the idea of religion right. as a source of power. But he knew that he had to die. I don't know if he needed to die a martyr's death before that, because he even acknowledged, like maybe I don't have to go through with this after all. At some point, when he's fighting the Inquisitor, but there, you, he was setting up for that. Like, like he knew that it might come to that, and he was planning for a long time in advance. Because there was the chapter where they went to visit the army in the caves before the big disaster happened. Like, probably right before that. And they were just, like, you know, checking out the troops and seeing how they were doing. And then he goes on this big grandiose, like, oh, well, like you're, you're my army. I will give you my power. And he helps the one guy in the sword fight with, with yes. the, the disbeliever. Yeah, he was experimenting with them, thinking of him as a deity that would imbue them with power. I don't think he was experimenting. I think he was flat out doing it. Like, he like was his, just trying to establish that. Yeah, he was just giving another scenario, another example, another vignette, some story that he knew would spread like wildfire about him and how he is personally empowering them. All Not, you have to do is believe in Kelsier and he will give you power to defeat hopeless odds. Exactly. So how do you fight this This Im- oppression that's been built into people for thousands of years you give them hope and like a person can't give them hope it's got to be faith that gives hope so the cynical part of me looks at this and thinks that this is how um evil people who build religions knowing that there's not actual truth underneath them use them to manipulate the feelings of people like if my people believe that they can be more powerful because they believe in me they may die trying but they'll accomplish my objective 
Exactly. And that, and then, but that's the, both faiths in the, that are described uh, in this book are exactly that way, is the Lord Rulers is built for a uh, tailor-made purpose, and then this religion that Kelsier builds up, which um, later becomes called survivorism, if you, if for right. those of you that are going to read, um, is built to, is tailor built for this specific purpose too. And actually that's one of the, one of the major themes through the second book is, um, so I don't want to do too many spoilers, but one of the aspects of the second book is that Vin is around and there's all these ska that keep coming up to her. Like, uh, Lady Vin, you're the survivor's heir. You're his, you're, you know, you're his apprentice. Like, what do we do now? And she's like, just constantly looking like, I don't know. Like there, this wasn't supposed to be like an actual it was a master plan. Yeah, there, this is not a master plan. There was not supposed to be anything that came after this. Kelsier was basically using you people, but she doesn't say that. But that's I mean, there's the core crew that knew Kelsier, and then there's all these people that now believe in this religion that he created, and the fallout and the aftermath of that is one of the major points of the second book. Okay, so it, it uh, I don't know what to call it. Like the the climax where Kelsier dies. Um, you know, that's the ultimate point of his kind of messianic arc where he deliberately sacrifices himself for the cause and, and, and cements his name forever as a martyr in this survivorism. He was a survivor and the Lord ruler killed him. And yeah. Right. But that's he showed kinda, that he, he, yeah, he knew that that there had to be some catalyzing moment or event that would you know, bring this religion, this fervor right. that he was building. So it was to done end. very publicly when he was trying to prevent the you know senseless executions of the Lord Ruler of the Ska. At this point, I'd written down that that Vin kind of had to complete her arc of her trust versus mistrust, and and she reacted in a way I found kind of unexpected, but I shouldn't have. In that she thought of Kelsier sacrificing himself as a martyr was was like how a loved one might react to a suicide of a loved one. She considered it to be a betrayal, an abandonment. I thought you were my friend. You didn't tell me you were going to leave, and now you left, and you're just like everyone else. And this, this, this um, confirms my belief that I've had all along that everyone will betray you eventually someday. So this is maybe a difference that you might not have been able to resonate with, because I, I feel like you've always been a very outgoing, very extroverted person. Um, I can tell you as an introverted person, um, it's... Uh, especially when I was a kid growing up, it's tough to make friends. But when you do make friends, like you really, really latch on and like really invest yourself into them um, because it was so difficult for you to get them in the first place. So when this happened, like I, I it might've been confusing for you, but I, I totally get it. Like 100%. Like, hmm. um, yeah. Like you told, like we're like, she finally come like, like allows herself to be vulnerable enough to trust and to be a part of this relationship that she never thought that she would have because it was actively destructive like she was told and taught and bred and raised that this is a bad thing allowing yourself to trust is only going to cause you pain and then he goes and from her perspective violates this trust by getting himself killed and not only does that it, it hurt again it goes back to what he said like it hurts because she was emotionally vested into him but also because she actually act, had to actively tear down her own defenses to allow it to happen in the first place and all of this does, this betrayal like hurts because she's vested in him and because it's reinforcing all the ideas that she's trying to reject as she grows as a person. That like trusting people is only going to bring you pain. This just reinforces that fact. And so, I mean, that, that was, I got it. And it was very powerful for me, at least. 
So she gets to this rock bottom point where she, uh, you know, is angry at him. And then Sazed comes in and he basically says to her, what is belief if you can't continue it after failure? Right. And then that's the message, like the, like kind of the core message of, of any faith. Yeah. And she picks herself up. She gets the team back together and finds a new plan to achieve the objective. Well, not that's interesting. Not really a new plan, but Kelsier's ultimate master plan that they just weren't privy to in the first place. All right. Like because uh, the uh, the renew the Conjure character comes out and like in Kelsier's body and says like this was his plan all along. Like he knew that this might have had to happen, and he's been training you without you realizing it, to take up these different roles. Like, it was clear. This was Kelsier's ultimate plan from the whole, from the start. And, like, he chose the crew specifically because they needed to be good people. Like, he, he couldn't just take skilled thieves. He had he wanted to have good people of, of moral fiber because he knew that they were going to be called on to do much, much more if his master plan was actually going to work out. So it was this, the again, there's always another secret. This entire, the plot of this book is the surface level um, kind of subversion or uh, misdirection that he's pulling with his own crew to actually uh, fulfill his real plan, which is to have the Ska rise up and throw off their shackles. All right. So I kind of want to wrap up this whole thing with, with an idea that occurred to me while I was reading this book. I realized that this, this book has already been filmed as a movie. Has it? It now has. that that I'm not following. Okay, but I, I I mean this in a cheeky kind of way. This okay. book has already been filmed as a movie. The movie came out in 2001. It was called Ocean's Eleven. Uh. <laughs> so let me tell you my theory of the final empires of Ocean's Eleven. So our hero just got out of prison and is trying to get together a team in order to carry off a big caper that he wants to look to them like it's going to enrich all of them, but secretly he has an underlying motive of revenge. <laughs> Are you with me so far? Uh, I'm with you so far. Yep. Okay. So they have to they have to prepare. They have to get together a team of the right constitution of people. They need to train them and prepare them. They got a plan. So Kelsier is Danny Ocean. Oh no, he I wants, got that. He wants revenge on Terry for stealing his wife. You know, and he wants to overthrow the Bellagio. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I, I can. I've, I agree. I've really I agree. fleshed this out. So you got to give me a minute. <laughs> oh, oh, there's more. Please. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Doxon, Kelsier's longtime friend and crew member, is Reuben, Elliot Gold. In the book, Doxon is not an Alamancer. He doesn't have any powers, and Reuben's the same. But he's motivated to overthrow Terry Benedict, and so he helps with his organizational administrative abilities, and he finances the whole thing. Vin is Linus, Matt Damon's character. Relative newcomer, some lineage of greatness, potential and a lot to learn, and goes around learning from everyone. Now... Okay. Julia, Julia Roberts' character I had a little bit of a hard time with, Tess. But I realized she was Ellen Venture. Ellen Venture was the nobleman uh, who, for most of the story, wasn't involved in the plan, but ultimately at the end became part of the capstone of the plan. She was a love interest on the outside of the caper who was intelligent and involved, but ultimately not part of the plan to overthrow the Empire, but then became part of it. The Lord Ruler, of course, is Terry Benef Benedict, the evil, unflappable CEO who's ruthless and intends to crush all his enemies with malice and ruin their families just for good measure. And this is like, this book so, is just a shot-for-shot shot remake of it. It is. Sazed uh, is oh gosh, Brad Pitt's more? character. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sazed <laughs> is Brad Pitt's character, Rusty. 
you know, the silent second man who just likes to eat and has a secret reserve of talent that he keeps well <laughs> hidden and who acts as a foil to the uh, confident Danny Ocean. Um, Breeze, if you remember, who was a soother, uh, was powerful, but he ne- he always just got his way with his silky smooth tongue. This is Saul, Carl Reiner's character, you know, the smooth veteran who doesn't have to fight because he can talk his way out of anything. <laughs> This turned into a commercial for Ocean's Eleven. I, I, I. The more I re- read this, the more I realized I got three other characters. But, uh, but, needless to say, you know, it, it follows many of the same things. Uh, that everyone on the team has a role. Uh, they kind of scout out the situation, figure out what to do. Their whole plan starts to come together, but then there's a major setback. If you remember in Ocean's Eleven, like they were going to cause the power outage that would allow them to break into the vault, but then they have an accidental power outage and then the power company fixes it and they have to do the whole subplot of getting the pinch in order to cause the EMP in order to break into the vault. I remember, Uh, yeah. And that's, you know, the same kind of thing happens. We're like, all right, we're going to get an army together and we're going to assault the the, um, Lord Ruler's city, you know, indirectly, but then the army gets wiped out and that's not part of the plan anymore. So uh, I, I think I think what you're I get it like I, I'm sure you have another half a page of descriptions. No, right? I'm about done. About done. I'll, I'll let you finish up. Go ahead. Okay. So and then we got the plucky newcomer that wants to grow and and become the leader, and then you know the plan has to readjust after a major, major setback. But early on, I identified this was a caper. We had a. a, a cast of characters and they were interacting and other than the fact that in the book the stakes are a lot higher than just trying to carry out a caper and get a bit of money and nobody's going to die but other than that it felt like this was oceans 11 in a fantasy magical setting so and this might be something that you you're missing um uh, brandon sanderson i think is on record as coming out and he very deliberately made this book uh, a heist book and like they even they frame the whole thing as a heist and so there's certain tropes in genre of the genre that have to happen like uh, getting the crew together and then the training and then the payoffs and the setbacks. So there's, he, he built it that way deliberately. Well, maybe um, Brandon Sanderson never admitted he did it on purpose, but Ocean's Eleven came out the same year he graduated from college. <laughs> so you think he watched Ocean's Eleven and then wrote a, wrote a heist? Uh, heist Absolutely. Book? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you then to go watch a couple of other heist movies because like the general framework of a heist movie is the same regardless of what the specifics of the plot I are. I think I gave more than just a little bit of parallels. Go watch another heist movie, I think. Um, now, what's interesting, I will, uh, to tease a little bit, uh, the, the other books, um, there are two more books in the series, in the trilogy the, for the Mistborn that take place, imme- the events immediately following what took place in the first book, and then again the third. So they're all together in the same timeline with the same characters and the same, not the same conflict, but kind of the fallout of this conflict, right? But what's interesting is the series continues with other books, but there is a time skip. So between book three and book four, there is something like 300 years that take place. And then Brandon Sanderson very deliberately wrote that book as a Western. Like uh, technology has progressed to the point where there's like revolvers and six shooters and there's steam trains and there's, you know, there's sheriffs and there's cowboys and there's bandits. And having all of that exist in a universe with this allomancy magic is like, I, I didn't know if I was going to like it at first, but like he did it was, again. Brandon Sanderson is amazing, and he did great. But he chose deliberately to write the, those books as a Western. Now, um, I remember reading an article of his. He's planning on doing another time skip to wrap up his Mistborn series. Um, uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, I might be wrong. Please correct me if I turn out to be wrong. 
but there's going to be another time skip and he's going to set it in like the Cold War era and it's going to be a very deliberate spy thriller type of uh, book. Wow. All right. There will be no correcting because uh, I don't intend to read another one of these books for a long time. Oh, uh, but that's I'm so like, sad. Well, I, I will say, all right, to spoil a little bit. So one thing that um, he keeps going that is in all of his books that he's writing about Mistborn is this core. Um, it's not the surface level, but it's this the core line that runs through all of them is there's always a character that's struggling with their identity and trying to transform and change who they are. Um, according to their circumstances or what they think they should be versus what they're called upon to be. And I, all of the books focus on a different person that's going through those transformations. And I, I find it just very interesting that you have this high fantasy action-packed plot line, but the core of it and the reason you care about it is because these people are struggling with the same things that real people do. And that's what I think the one, the main characteristic that that defines, at least for me, a good story from a bad story. A bad story is like uh, The Last Jedi. You just have the surface level action and that's it. A good story has all of that, but the real thing that's going on is with the people and the characters. I think that's yes. all I have to say about that. All right. Good job, Forrest. So <laughs> for uh, next time, I had, a, I had one spoiler for you, and then you can if you got any. Mine was that I saw this story in the news in Boston that there was this couple that it had um, they, they logged into their bank account one day and there was $120,000 deposited in their account that they don't know where it came from. I read I saw that article on Reddit and I and I read the there was what happened the results and what took place and yeah that okay. was crazy. This happened to me once. Uh, that the, the, that's I think that's exact all scenario. <laughs> and and I want to tell you what happened to me but I'm not going to tell you yet. Right. And I'm abs- I'm certain that you handle it in a different way than these people did. And we'll talk about <laughs> we'll talk about both We'll talk about that next time. next time. Yeah. How about you? You got uh, anything? Now, well, also next time is now I have a book reading assignment to do. Yes. Uh, I and I don't. Uh, it's scarcity. The book is about scarcity. It's written by, if I recall, it is an, an economist and a psychologist. Is that right? Yes. Scarcity: okay. Why Having Too Little Means So Much by Sindel Mullenthon and Elder Shafir. Link in the show notes for those of you who want to follow along. Yeah, um, I I will be reading that um, in the next two weeks, and then episode four we'll have our discussion about scarcity. <laughs>